so taunting Trump tweets, China playing hardball. What happens in the markets if all those talks fail? I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is Markets Talk. And with us this week, we've the Chief Market Strategist of WH Ireland, Mike Ingram, Chris Bailey, founder of Financial Orbit, and hosting us here at markets.com, it's Chief Market Analyst, Neil Wilson. So, Chris, the trade talks, or should we call them the trade stalemate? Oh, goodness, I'm officially bored, but it's super, super important for the world economy. But clearly, the president has refined again his art of the deal, is looking for something special. The Chinese, I think, ultimately, the thing in Chinese society is face is super important and the, the president's clearly offended them they, they have at least turned up the scope for the can to be kicked down the road on these things is extremely high um, but we will find out by the end of the week so super super important for the world economy and quite correctly so markets have rediscovered volatility yes michael isn't the real question not uh, why the stock market was down but actually why it doesn't seem to care very much it isn't actually down very much well i'm not sure this is a, a function of boiled frog syndromes because you know we've had trump you know petulantly throwing his toys out of the pram periodically for what 18 months now to some extent the market's taking the view this is sort of background noise and it's it's difficult to see what moves the dial clearly his tweet on sunday evening moved the dial and markets took notice but you know as i suggested last time we sat around this desk um politics and you know geopolitical instability is a bit of a blind spot for the market and you know obviously volatility was just mentioned you know, markets were pretty much priced for perfection leading into this. But Neil, we have got world's two largest trading economies hurtling towards a collision here. Yes, we do. I think um, the difference this time, I think, for the market reaction is that the, the Fed is now very much on side. And I think that is a shift. And so if you look back at the October sell-off, the October through to December sell-off and the previous one, you know, it was a different sort of outlook that we were getting from the Fed. So that's probably going to keep things on side for the time being. I think even if you get an all-out trade war between the US and China, I question whether or not that will long term produce a real sell off in equities like like we saw before and i think i think as long as central banks stay on side then that liquidity will be there for for the for the markets so chris looking at how the market has reacted certainly during the last week are any of the responses kind of stock specific does it relate in any way in your view to the potential if these tariffs come on and importing companies in the us suffer or they can't sell into china the reaction has been most prevalent and obvious in asia you had that minus seven percent day to start off this week in in china now clearly chinese market has risen the most year to date so therefore as the old market adage goes you know the more it rises the quicker it falls and uh, clearly china is horribly exposed to to shifts and, and changes in the sentiment so i think some of that's been quite logical the relative lack of movement of the u.s market is striking uh, unfortunately none of this is is a, is a zero-sum game um, ultimately is the U.S. a loser from any, you know, inflammation of, of trade barriers and levels? Absolutely. And we haven't yet seen that, I don't think, factored in. The world is still broadly in love with U.S. equities. And certainly at the company level, look at the quarterly results season. It's still been largely backward looking. Sort of the outlook statements have been relatively muted. There's been nothing really to get your teeth into from that perspective. So my view would be it's still lots of different scenarios. But ultimately, if the president wants to win the 2020 election, having a raging trade well, I'm still not convinced is the way to do it. 
And ultimately, if I think it's going to be much more sensitive to any market fall if it occurs in the States, and it will occur if you do get um, barriers, I'm afraid. Mike, I could see you nodding there, but mm. so we have had this kind of Goldilocks scenario in which the world has put its money in the United States. There are some signs that it's coming off. People are getting anxious. And I wondered also where the sort of volatility question fits into this. Yeah, well, certainly even before, you know, Trump's recent intervention, you were still seeing, you know, economists certainly expecting a further slowdown in the global economy and actually a broad-based slowdown in the US going into 2020. So I can only assume the current trajectory that there's this further downside risk. And it's interesting to see the way that's being framed is it's largely through the trade and investment side rather than the consumption side, because obviously employment levels have held up pretty pretty well. And in, certainly in the US, you know, there is a certain degree of, of wage inflation. The issue is perhaps rather than looking at it country specific, because, you know, we had recent IMF research which suggested that on a relative basis, obviously not on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis in the all-out US-China trade war, the US wins that. So you, you, I think it was 0.6 off GDP, 1.1.5% one off for China. But the US stock market is host to some of the biggest growth companies in the world. And in an environment where growth is increasingly scarce, the premium for growth goes up. It doesn't go down. So it might seem counterintuitive. Actually, this is relatively good for the US stock market. But just to round it off very quickly, long answer, volatility. Yeah, I mean, volatility, I think, is going up. Markets leading to this were incredibly complacent. Very little volatility on a forward-looking basis being priced in. And they've been caught napping. We must talk a little bit about currencies, Neil. It's been a relatively interesting week. Certainly, the haven currencies, the Japanese yen, for example, have been popular. And some other issues around, I don't know, the Swedish krona at a decade low and uh, the Antipodean banks have been moving rates as well. The yen clearly picked up a bit from this uh, trade war and the equity sell-off, approaching uh, sort of one one o nine. Certainly trading below the one ten level uh, as of Thursday. And I think, uh, regards the RBA and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, the RBA chose not to cut. It was a sort of fifty fifty. I think roughly is what what we thought probably beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably they'll they'll cut in the next few months. I think that was the the indication. And the New Zealand Reserve Bank went ahead with its cut. We saw. For example, the the Kiwi spiked lower, but then recovered ground because I think basically it been been sort of priced in, and likewise a sort of reverse reaction with the with the Australian dollar. We've come a few minutes into this, this the, these thoughts and musings, and haven't talked about thankfully the Brexit word or the pound. So I'm going to break that now. We've, we've got to introduce Dong. it at some point. Yeah, and you know the pound's flicking around either side of the 130 level against the dollar, which obviously is a big level, and clearly that's political intrigue ahead of the excitable, we're so excited European parliamentary elections in a few weeks' time. Ditto the euro, and you know Neil mentioned sort of haven currencies. And it is still surprising to me how well the dollar is holding up. It tends to be a currency people go towards in times of strife and angst. And I guess we've had a bit more of that. But my feeling would be it is very much a directional play on the tone of trade negotiations. Let's see where we end the week on that. I think clearly the dollar and its interactions with all other currencies are the only thing of interest in the in the FX world. Okay, well, let us turn to oil now. Obviously, an important component in much of uh, how the world works, if you like. And we most recently, Thursday, saw prices falling. It was was almost as if the trade jitters got the better of uh, trends in the other direction. Yeah, I think another sucker punch as far as markets are concerned. So you had a number of supply, potential supply shocks. 
Venezuela certainly has been an ongoing situation. Libya, similarly. Nigeria, in terms of supply disruptions, also come into the picture. And of course, you know, perhaps more fundamentally, towards the end of April, you had this news from the Trump administration that they wouldn't be, you know, extending these um, yeah. I- Iraqi exporter waivers. So there's a lot of, you know, supply disruption going on. But then, of course, you know, you suddenly get various investment banks mentioning no names, saying, oh, yeah, it's going to go to $100. And, you know, the price does really well. And then, of course, you know, Trump tweets on a Sunday evening and all's like, bang, he gets hit, hit on the nose. The other issue, which I think, which is long term, is I've very much got this thesis that we're actually going zero carbon <laughs> much faster than people realise. And so, you know, this talk about, you know, another, you know, commodity, or well, certainly oil super cycle. So all those protests in Oxford Street were worth it then. Huh? Absolutely. Well, seems seem so. I'll tell you the other interest about the oil markets, um, something which broke in the last few hours, and that is it looks as if Chevron are walking away from this Anadarko deal, having obviously been pressured by Buffett who obviously was all over the wires last Saturday at his big Berkshire Hathaway Woodstock for Capitalists, I think how he, how he describes it, um, get-together. Uh, uh, well, they're going to buy a wind farm instead. They, maybe, and, but, but it's kind of interesting to me that in the oil markets, you know, the difference between oil has done, done rather well year-to-date despite recent volatility. Oil shares and energy sector shares have done somewhat less well, and I thought that we would start to see some more M&A. It looks as if the competitive bid for Anadarko is going to go the way of, of Buffett and his team there, which I find interesting that Chevron is, is, has been outbid and decided not to raise their bid mm. further, which shows perhaps that some of the things Michael's been saying in terms of paying up too much for your oil and gas assets, maybe there are other opportunities available. And uh, still with oil, Neil, of course, we've got the complication of Iran. We've already heard Mm. mention of the end of the waivers. But there is a sense now that Europe might want to stay in the game. Iran's almost (laughs) hoping they might be able to flog a bit of oil to Europe. And obviously, there are a few places in Southeast Asia they can do that. But do you see kind of fault lines with the US? This could be a a dangerous argument. Well, it is, yeah. I think, I mean, there's already fault lines with the US. I think that Pompeo has just cancelled his trip to Germany. I think that's a, not a good sign. The, Iran, though, has, has said it's going to pull out of certain of these nuclear agreements. So I think that that leaves the EU in a position where, where it might be le- a lot less willing to actually to support Iranian oil effectively. It's hard to tell because we don't know how just how much China and, and other countries might just be absorbing it anyway. So it remains to be seen just what effect the hard sanctions will actually have. And then on the other side, you know, Saudi Arabia can, can raise output by half a million barrels a day without even breaching its output it's you know self-imposed OPEC output cuts so there's a lot there's a bit of scope there for I think for um, OPEC to raise production and fill that gap and I I think probably probably the key I think maybe the key is is this demand growth picture that what that's looking like and actually the latest data from China is actually very strong Chinese imports hit a record high in April so it's a complicated picture for oil and we've seen a small retracement in the price and it's just it's hard to see just whether or not that is just a retracement and then it's going to shoot higher again or or if it's at a top already. To me, I come back to this interesting competitive bid for the Anadarko assets, is that I still think that for major oil companies, it's cheaper to, at the moment, to buy than, than, than build. And for me, I find that very interesting. And certainly, I, I anticipate there will be more deals in the sector, because ultimately, these companies are going to have to 
either start to spend again, because I still think the risk of depletion in the oil space is very high, or they've got to start building stuff, or they're not going to hit their targets. They're, they're big yielders, big important stocks across many indices, but ultimately there's only so long you can keep paying big dividend yields and not investing money in your assets. So fascinating sector, wholly political, big part of stock markets, what's there not to like? And of course, Mike, the AIM market and elsewhere is kind of littered with the faded ambitions of people who've invested in oil plays and they don't all work. It's, it's feast or famine, really, isn't it? There doesn't seem to be any middle ground. These, are, these things either seem to be sort of 10 baggers or you lose your, lose your initial deposit, as they say. Having seen a lot of these sort of so-called blue sky valuations and, you know, the sort of so-called proven and probable reserves and, mm. you know, what do you value it as a barrel of oil? You go, well, yeah, that's that's fine. And actually, one of my, my, my earliest stints, shall we say, in markets was covering Russia, which is fascinating. I went out to Siberia and saw lots of wells, but I also had spent a lot of time with UCOS. And, <laughs> and I did remind an investor who, for some bizarre reason, still that went on to do rather well, um, that um, you know, it doesn't matter what your theoretical asset value is if the, if the Russian government could just create liabilities out of thin air, which of course is what precisely what they did. <laughs> okay, well let's turn to some of the companies in the news. been quite a lot with results this week and one I know that you've talked about, Neil, is BT and you came up here with the mixed metaphor of the week. Uh, describe the I? results as, <laughs> Probably. when you remember what you wrote, a silver lining hiding a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Why was I talking about that? BT, they've maintained the dividend, which obviously was the thing that everyone was talking about, that they might cut it. They said they'll maintain it next year as well. I think what I was saying in my notes, just a, a brief commentary around it, just that maybe the new CEO, Phil Jansen, he's just maybe bottled it a bit. I think this was his moment maybe to to take the plunge and say, yes, we'll cut the dividend and free up some cash for investment. And whilst they are raising investment, I think they could have just gone a bit a bit mm. further because it does look like probably BT is going to need uh, a fair bit more capital investment. Yeah, and not, certainly not the first and won't be the last chief to kind of bottle it, as you say, and postpone the evil day. Chris. Yeah, well, I read the presentation and um, I thought to myself, my goodness. So we don't have the, to. The, the, <laughs> so we, indeed, and I really wouldn't because the management consultants have got at it and it was management speak, some lovely graphics in the presentation, but it was all kind of style and no substance. And it sounds good. You know, you talk about cost cutting, uh, next generation networks, except rising return on capital. As you say, Neil, that the dividend being maintained is something there for income investors. But where's the meat? Where, where, how are you going to get from A to B? So that's what I, I was surprised too, because the, the weekend, last weekend's press kind of teed up that actually there was going to be a dividend cut in order to fund CapEx. And that was the plan. And allegedly big investors were on track with it. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. You know, a bit of a surprise for dividend it's, investors, but a bit of a disappointment as well. It's going to be much harder to do it down the line now, having stated, yeah. you know, it'll, it'll risk his credibility and the whole management credibility if they then in six months' time they all we're short of money here, we need to cut it. So, And, is, is and I would say my big picture concern going forward for the entire industry is how do you monetize 5G? You know, because it's going to be enormously expensive mm-hmm. and, you know, extracting cash returns from that, I think is, you know, there are big question marks attached. Mm. Well, arguably BT is still trying to monetize the copper. Well, well indeed. <laughs> They're still trying to develop 4G at a certain level, aren't they? Judging by my connectivity yes. a few minutes well ago, indeed, but that's well another indeed. detail. Yeah. Another old British name really struggling to keep up is ITV. Who wants to have a go at that one? <laughs> Their ad revenues are just um, being hit quite hard. I think they were down 7%, mm. I think, this uh, in the first quarter. So not great. I think my view is it's sort of there's all clearly cyclical stuff happening, mm. but also I think they're facing the big structural headwinds with 
cord cutters stealing, you know, they're, they're getting fewer eyeballs on these ads, and so that it's harder mm. for them to generate the Decent income. Decent yield there, though, Chris. Yeah. People see this as a dividend stock. Yeah, no, and potentially a, a takeover one, too, mm. But because, as, as Neil said, there's some good bits and there's some bad bits. Studios were still great, so, you know, content is king and all of that stuff. They're still pushing out internationally. Doesn't there. make as much money, though. That's but the problem. But it doesn't, and, yeah. and it, particularly at a time when the, the advertising revenues are under pressure, which mm-hmm. is clearly the bread and butter. But the good news is, and I know this will particularly excite you, Nigel, Love Island 2019 is just around the corner. Mm. So, what is that? Don't, I, I know you turned down your place on it last year, guess. Don't pretend you don't know what it is. They are lapping tough yeah. comps, and something like that, some of the summer's big sporting events, yes, there's no World Cup and stuff this there's year. There's a Rugby World Cup. Um, there's a Rugby World Cup, more, that's right. Much more important. Mm, but judging by the Ajax move at their share price, I'd say football is, is all important sometimes for the stock market. ITV seems to me as if it's a declining call option on a takeover, a big dividend yield, hit and hope, really. It's a very unfortunate mixture of, should we say, secular decline and also cyclical exposure to the UK economy. Because even if we get clarity on, you know, dare I say it, Brexit again later on in the year, we're going to get, it's going to be probably so late in the year that advertising budgets which aren't spent are just not going to mm-hmm. get spent. And Britbox. Well, I we mean, don't know and there was no detail in the, in the, in the last release on Britbox at all mm-hmm. and now we've got things like Disney Plus yeah, you know, yet another streaming A lot of pressure on Caroline McCall there. Absolutely. Okay, well it's the ultimate global gig economy play. Uber has waited a decade to go public though the time it's actually coming public is uh, probably not ideal. Again, timing's not great for us. By the time a lot of people listen to this, we may have a lot more details about this, but just sort of general thoughts about these new economy plays and how they're going, because obviously Lyft has seen an earnings fall. Yeah, I mean, Lyft's been a, an IPO disaster, the shares coming down from Misnamed. what was it? Indeed, I mean, down, down, falling down the lift, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing about markets, they go up like an escalator from down in the lift, and quite literally on this one. And um, what, what is it now, from the mid-70s to the, to the mid-50s? So, you know, unsurprisingly, Uber is not going to get a $100 million market valuation. I think it's sort of 85 it, or 90 80 or something to 90 like that. is which, the, range, the initial you know, range. It's yeah, still a yeah. phenomenal you know, market cap. They are raising money at the same time, and it might revolutionise transport. Who knows? All I do know is it is indicative of the faith that people still have in markets, despite what we've talked about already in the last 20 minutes, that people are still prepared to back it. Good luck to them. Mike, we did see this driver strike. It was a little bit of a damp squib, to be honest, but it was kind of raising important issues about freelance work and of course it does also raise the question of whether governments in various parts of the world might legislate on behalf of workers and and their labours are essential to the business models of these companies. Yeah exactly I mean I think we are past the point of peak central banker and I think governments are getting more involved sometimes that's helpful sometimes clearly less so workers rights etc and you know income and wealth inequality as you know are ongoing issues and of course you know this this comes up against you know these so-called unicorn stocks like you know Lyft and Uber where the investment thesis is based on well what really the support that they've had is largely a function of you know so FOMO fear of missing out mm. and you know when when the two of them come together and you go well hang on actually my glass half full glass is actually half empty and actually it's not half full of champagne it's half full of you know i don't know um some sort of laxative then you know clearly you're going to see adverse moves and in terms of you know the ongoing uber ipo i understand 
that um, even though I think the books have been reported to be, I think, three times covered, I think they, they're thinking of getting around a mid-range, 44 to 50 bucks a share, so maybe 47, but, mm-hmm. but let's see. I mean, Lyft were greedy and they raised the, the, the target price, but you know, it's a function of the lack of momentum in, in risk markets at the moment. Now, in the 1980s and 90s, when Neil Wilson was still in nappies, there was a, a whole string of companies. Still am. There's a whole string of companies that went to the US and failed retailers in particular. Marks and Spencer was one. There were many others. We've seen a couple this week. Newer star companies, Purple Bricks and Domino's, both suffered some and had to fess up to some big losses overseas. Yeah, full retreat for Purple Bricks. I mean, they they went into the US and, and Australia and have just been burnt very, very badly. It was costly and They've come up against quite a hard market, especially in Australia. You know, the house prices have, have been on, on the slide for a while. The US, these are all hyper-localised markets as well. So you need to have boots on the ground in every small in every small area. You can't just go in as a as an online operator and think that you can that you can just cut it. So I think they they made some mistakes there and it's claimed the the founder, the founder and CEO has had to leave. So yeah, it's a tough one for Purple Bricks. And then likewise Domino's just just coming up against a lot of uh, integration costs as as they try and um absorb certain businesses in Norway and, and, and other... I thought uh, pizza was the ultimate international food. Well, it, it is, Nigel, but the trouble is is that, and I think the same for Purple Bricks in the sense that there is a market, particularly if you're number one or two, but the trouble is as you move away from your core geography, you are just another player in some senses. And I kind of feel, particularly with Domino's, when I looked at their numbers, you know, they are the number one amazing numbers on digital delivery in the UK. It was quite phenomenal. However, you go to Germany, you go to Norway, you go to other places, and you're just another player. The barriers are not that high. The, the sort of the technological distribution insights are not that wondrous at, not, at Domino's versus a, another operator. And, and therein lies the challenge. And with Purple Bricks, I'm sure there are people in Australia and America doing all right with a not dissimilar model. Mm-hmm. The trouble is, it's hard. And I think generally, it's tell, you, you can see this across many industries now, if you're the number one or two, fine. You go further down the, the, down the line, it gets tougher. You need some kind of edge, some kind of angle. I saw sales were also down in Liechtenstein. Do bankers eat pizzas? Obviously not enough. (laughs) (laughs) Something else that caught my eye this week, it may not have caught any of yours, and that was that Citigroup has closed one of its private stock trading units. This is what people like to call a dark pool. It's only one. I'm sure there are others around. I never really fully understood them. Does this mean we don't need them anymore, Chris? (laughs) Well, I think it's back to what I just said, actually, that you can't have... There are only... any market, the dark pool market, whatever, can only satisfy so many people. And my feeling without actually intense and intimate knowledge of, of this particular uh, uh, area would be that they are would just decide they were just a marginal operator and uh, decided mm. just to close the doors. Because ultimately, you think about liquidity business, you need liquidity. Without that, you're suckered. Yeah, you, you have actually seen enormous fragmentation of equity trading venues and, you know, largely that's been driven by the regulatory environment in terms of this particular um, alternative trading venue or trade, trading market. I think they ranked 23 out of 32 mm. in the US, so I mean, like, I'm assuming that's a very, very long tail. I mean, in aggregate, I think they, I think the latest data that I saw that they they, they um, account for something like 14% of US traded stocks, so a seventh more mm. or less. Um, so they are significant, but you know, there's no point in being a bit player in this market. And of course, you know, what do we see in the first quarter number from the US investment banks equity trading down about 20%. Mm. So mm. they've struggled and they've taken that weak result in the first quarter as an opportunity to exit that market. Mm. 
Lots of well-known companies with results in the next few days. We'll cover just a few of them, I think, here. Uh, Centrica, the British gas owner, uh, has earnings uh, likely to miss the forecast. Again, this is another company, Neil, where a dividend cut has been forecast. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's... I mean, it's got to happen sooner or later. Ian Corns is <laughs> clinging on <laughs> remarkably well, considering the share price performance and general lack of performance. I think well, we've been paid as much as he is. I'm, I know. I'm not surprised he's... 44 he's, million pounds, he's, he's doing rather it's well. It's not bad, is it? I feel like the writing's got to be on the wall for him at some point. The last annual report, they, they lowered their cash flow target, well, their expected cash flow, and that's really why we think probably the dividend's going to be cut. They're doing well in terms of cutting costs, but you can't just keep cutting costs without generating new new sales, and they're losing, I've just got my notes here, they're, they lost 740,000 UK domestic accounts last year, so that's 6% of the, yeah. the numbers. I mean, you just can't keep doing that, you've got smaller rivals coming up and there are problems with the smaller rivals and we've seen a lot of them go bust yeah. because they've been unhedged it's it's tough i think i think i think centrica needs a full sort of root and branch you, what, type look what's look the again. long-term effect of these new apps and things which allow you to automatically switch to the cheapest provider because in a way i mean the whole kind of privatization of the power sector the, the regulators always allowed a bit of fogging they allow mm. customers to be poached and switch and all that people all automatically move to the cheapest provider then that affects the market itself doesn't well, it? well you, you do i mean you move to for, for the economists out there sort of a situation of perfect competition but the the disadvantage of that is and we're seeing it because the government's kind of trying to do that already with its price cap policy is that you get a massive disincentive to invest you get a lack of innovation neil's already mentioned some of the small operators going to the wall but you look at the bigger operators too sse would like to merge or sell some of their retail facing businesses the german operators are trying to do a deal yes shell is accumulating assets in the sector but ultimately it feels to me as if there are deals about to happen and that's in reflection of the fact that this is a, an unattractive area to invest and be involved with at the moment but you can to me you come back down to once you start putting price caps on and other disincentives to invest and participate who are the ultimate losers actually it's customers you know you're trying to perhaps do the right thing but guess what the market actually does if you leave it unfettered can actually be your best friend as a, as a is, consumer is this one of corbyn's what targets and, this, and uh, then think, yeah and then yeah. jezza wants to um <laughs> wants to wants to nationalize it and yeah. you know be it water companies Royal Mail allegedly, who also got numbers coming up, and uh, Centrica and related, you know, in exchange for some nice um, high yielding gilt. Then his Brexit policy was as clear as his policy with regard to UK utilities. <laughs> we, we don't know where we Ooh, were. Caref- careful, Nigel. No, all, I, all I'd say is competitively, I mean, the entire sector is a complete mess. And uh, I think certainly the churn numbers on the most recent churn numbers would, is going to be an investor focus. Mm-hmm. Another company with Q1 results that are unlikely to be pretty is Kingfisher. We talked about this company before. Veronique Lowry walked the plank. Au revoir. They've got a lot of planks in B&Q, haven't they? I wonder if they made a walk, one of their own planks. <laughs> What's happening with Kingfisher? Well, I think we're just looking for an update on where, where management goes, what this, the CEO succession planning uh, looks like, whether or not they're going to 
revamp the one strategy, which is clearly not delivered. I don't think there'll be any major movement in terms the of one sales. Become the 1.1 strategy. Yeah, 1.1. <laughs> 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 don't uh, know about the share price, minus 0.9. But anyway, um, we also had good numbers from Travis Perkins. Now, mm. they themselves have had issues, but they reported Wix was actually in better stead, etc. I mean, Screwfix always well, does well, it. and that's mm. fine, but that's it. it's everything else. Yeah, you know, K- problem, Kingfisher yeah. Is, a, is a funny business. It feels still to me that the chairman has got to make a decision here, and I think the appointment of the, of the next CEO is a great insight as to whether this bad boy is broken up or whether they struggle okay. on. Let's move from screws to something a bit more luxurious. Burberry. A couple of Italians trying to take the company up market and they seem to be making reasonable fist of it so far. Uh, you know, that's right. And the, the thing is with Burberry, uh, like with any luxury company, you've got this natural correlation with Asia, uh, Chinese demand become ever more important, you know, the largest source of revenue for the company today. Shares are at a, a big old level, around about £20. It's a big, big support resistance point for them. This is an important set of numbers because I think now you've got the new management team, the new new collections and selections um, sort of maturing. Now we'll see whether they can really start to turn around Burberry as they've, as they've promised. You know, you look at some of the other luxury players over the, the last results season. LVMH did very well. Mm. Some of the other ones like Keering, perhaps expectations got a bit ahead of themselves. Burberry, be interesting to find out. You know, this is a big set of numbers for them. You know, it's way beyond, I think, just what they say per se in terms of revenues and profit. It's more about where they think they're going and expectations for the next year or so. And Thomas Cook has its interim earnings on Thursday. Shares took off a little bit because Lufthansa seemed to be interested in Condor, the German airline, possibly even the UK one. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that would get past the regulators, though. That's the thing. I'm not sure uh, on that. But they, it would be a help, obviously, for, for Thomas Cook because they need mm. the money and they've got lots of debt. And they've issued, what, three profits warnings in, mm-hmm. in the last however many months. And it's it's clearly a tough market for package holidays. I mean, mm. it's just it's not the same as it was 30 years ago. So it's, it's tougher. And they've faced lots of cyclical headwinds. And Spain's been really, you know, that's where everyone's gone back to Spain. And that's they don't make any money out of Spain. Mm. But I think there have been signs that people are heading back to the sort of higher margin, less competitive parts of the world like Turkey and Egypt it would be a positive for them. And their competitor too is building lots of hotels so clearly the tour operations are less profitable than having the, the assets. Yeah that's right I mean in, in, in theory vertical integration is what you want but of course what Thomas Cook maybe in hindsight again they've overextended themselves a bit I mean ultimately the problem comes down to debt um, and the fact that you've got these massive working capital swings in something like a travel and leisure business, which is horribly seasonal, and that's what suckered them. They're trying to sort of talk to the banks, try and get some facility in place. I think they'll be successful in doing that. But you kind of feel that ultimately they've either got to sell bits off or try and tap up their big Chinese investor who owns, I think, just, just 10% plus order of the business and say to them, look, this is a mega play which you can utilise for the hordes of Chinese tourists that are going to run around the world over the next generation. Use our experience and our assets and everything else and just buy us. And just to finish with Mike, in terms of the UK stock market overall, we've not talked a lot about Brexit, thank goodness, this week. But I mean, what, what's your sort of sense about the, the tone of this market at the moment? <sighs> well, yeah, exactly. Sigh. But long sigh. Well, it was interesting because I, I think there certainly had been, I think, selective buying of the UK market up until relatively recently. But that, on the data that I'm getting, that 
feels as though that's kind of petering out. And it's also reflected in the non-commercial positioning around sterling, which, you know, just about got to that break-even level, you know, neither long nor short. You know, there's no real appetite to go long sterling. And, you know, given the sort of gathering domestic political clouds in the UK, in and around Brexit and that, you know, that awful showing in the local elections, etc. And, you know, what happens after Theresa May. Yeah, I, I think people are quite wary. There's a broad consensus that UK equities, even if you adjust for, you know, the sectors and so forth, looks cheap. But, you know, arguably there's also a risk premium attached, which hasn't perhaps significantly eroded over the last month or so. Thanks very much indeed. Well, that was the Chief Market Strategist at WH Ireland, Mike Ingram. And our thanks too to Chris Bailey from Financial Orbit and Neil Wilson hosting us here at markets.com. Until next time, it's goodbye.